Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 is where we'll be this morning, kind of a non-traditional Christmas passage, if you will. We're just working through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 17, we'll be in verses 22 through 27 uh, this morning. Now, now, if you're like me at any degree, there, there's sometimes people will tell you something, and if you don't write it down, you're going to forget it. Are you at that stage of life where you think that you can remember everything, but you, you remember barely anything? Are there things that you remember that you wish you could forget, and there's things you should remember, but you, you shouldn't remember, but you, you do remember them? I mean, we've all been in these situations where we're reminding of things, and, and the worst fear I have in my life is when Abby looks at me and she'll say, did you forget something? And internally, this dread happens, and I begin to die a slow death inside, and I begin to think, well, is it our anniversary? Is it her birthday? Is there a child that I was supposed to pick up from school that I've neglected? to? I mean, all these things begin to go through my mind, and it, it may have been just, did you take the trash out? I mean, it may have been as simple as that. But in my mind, I'm thinking the worst scenario because I forgot and needed a reminder. And so we, we have these moments, and I'm so grateful for technology, because you can, people will come to me even on a Sunday morning, and, and, and before I even sit down, I've already forgotten what they said, and it's not because I'm mean or rude, I just, my mind, short-term memory loss, it's just there, okay? But if I don't write it down, I'm likely to forget it, and with the advent of technology, there's, there's even reminders that you can put in based on location, like when I come home and it says, hey, you know, these are some things I need to be reminded of when I arrive home or when I arrive at the office. There's things that I need to be reminded. And so my phone will automatically remind me, which, by the way, is a little terrifying that it can know exactly where I am and tell me exactly what it needs to tell me. And so there's these reminders that were given. There's even apps called Reminder, right? Why? Because we, we often forget things. We just simply forget. Which, by the way, next Sunday is Christmas Day. If you weren't aware, Christmas is seven days away. Okay, you've been reminded. But even in the Gospels, in, in the Gospels there are these moments like today where Jesus reminds the disciples of something that's going to take place. Something they've been already told about in a previous chapter. And, and in other Gospels we learn that they've found out these things. And yet they, they needed to be reminded because they had already forgotten and so in Matthew 17, Jesus, I believe, is going to remind us about two things. And the title is, uh, Behold, uh, Jesus' Christmas, His Reminders. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 17, start in verse 22. But if you're there, will you say word? As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son, the son of Man is about to be betrayed and into the hands of men, and... They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised, and they were deeply distressed. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, Peter said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, what do you think, Simon, for whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? From strangers, Peter said. And Jesus told them, and the sons are free. But so we don't offend them. Go into the sea, cast a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. I, I almost titled this message this morning, Death and Taxes. <laughs> now, the reality is that this is just such an, maybe an odd Christmas 
message. But there's a couple of reminders that Jesus is going to give us today, and one that I think ties directly to Christmas. The first reminder is that Jesus reminds them that he must die. We must remember Jesus dies. Jesus must die. There's this reality that as they are gathering together, they're, they're all, again, going to kind of the home base. Capernaum was kind of the, the central hub that Jesus retreated to whenever he was with his disciples. In fact, if you go to Capernaum today, which I think I've told you this before, but they say they know where Peter lived. Mm -hmm. They say they know where Peter lived, and they built a church over his house. And you can, it looks like a spaceship, so you can Google it later. But if you Google it, it's like it's Peter's spaceship. That's what it looks like. It's this, this weird contraption. You can look down onto the place that they claim is where Peter lived. We, we don't know exactly if he lived there, but the house is maybe... Uh, would be what he would have lived in. The temple is there. You can see all those things that are, or the, the synagogue is there, there in Capernaum. You can see all those things. But here, Jesus is coming into kind of home base, and he gathers his disciples together, and he reminds them that he's going to die. Now, again, Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration where he had a conversation with Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John were there, and Peter's the one who said, hey, let's build three little temples here on this mountain, and let's just stay here forever, and Jesus said, don't do that. And so they come down off the mountain, when they're coming down off the mountain, then they have this moment where this demon-possessed, or this, this child uh, who's been throwing himself into the fire and into the water, and, and he, he heals this little boy. And so now, all of a sudden, Jesus shares with them that he's going to die. Look at the text, look at what it says in verse 22 and 23, he gathers them together, he says the son's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will, they will kill him, and on the third day they will be, he will be raised up. But this distressed them. It's a similar way where you'll get some bad news and good news, but all you'll remember is the bad news. Right? You'll, you'll, you'll get bad news and good news, but you only remember the bad news. This is just what we do as people. We, we rarely remember the good things, and we generally remember the bad things. Remember that Christmas when, and then the tree caught on fire? I mean, it's just those kinds of things that we remember. Now, Jesus had just told them some really good news. But it, it deeply, as the text, the word literally means, it worried them. It, 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 it was agony for them. But Jesus has told them, I'm going to be betrayed. Which, when you hear that, to be betrayed means that you're, you're, you're turned against by someone who is close. So maybe there's a degree of which they're going, well, who's going to betray Jesus? But why does Jesus come to this time? Why does Jesus come to this moment to share with the disciples what's about to happen? Well, in part, Jesus is laser focused on his mission. We're just a few chapters away from Jesus going to the cross. And so there's a degree of which he's telling them this, reminding them this moment. He's already told them in chapter 16. But he's reminding them in this moment so that when it happens, they will remember that he had already predicted that this would take place. And so Jesus has come to this moment and he's reminding them, although he's not dead yet, he's saying this is what's going to happen. And I think the death of Christ shows the infinite love Christ has for lost sinners. The infinite love and the value that you have in the eyes of the Lord. And yet Jesus sits here and he tells them that this is going to take place. And you, you might have been like me and, and maybe you've wondered this at some point in time. You maybe wondered, why did Jesus actually have to die? Like, couldn't there have been a different way 
for salvation to be made available to men and women on this earth. Couldn't there have been a, another way that God could have done it? I mean, could God have just kind of magically waved his finger or, or done that, that force thing you do at the grocery store to open the doors? I mean, couldn't, couldn't that have happened? Couldn't God have done something different? And, and that question usually comes from a good place, but sometimes we ask in a, maybe in an accusatory way, why did Jesus have to die? And this morning, just for a moment, I, I, I want to dive into that question because I think it, it bears out for us at this Christmas season because if we understand why Jesus came, then it makes the birth all the more glorious at this Christmas season. If you, if you understand the reason Jesus came to die, then you, it, it makes the, the birth narrative, the birth of Christ in the season become all that more glorious because you realize that Jesus was on a mission. And so there's a book that's titled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I'm not going to go over all 50. But just two I want to highlight with you this morning. The first one is this. Why did, Jesus, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because the punishment for sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. You say, well, man, that, that's really discouraging. See, because when we think about sin, we'll think about big things like murder or stealing a car or taking your, your, brother's, uh, your, your brother's allowance. I mean, these are like big things, right? And we'll minimize the, the little things like, well, I, I just lied a little bit when it came to this or I deceived and the fish wasn't this big. It was really this big, but it's just a, a, white, a white lie. It's things that we'll describe like that. It's just a small thing. But see, when God created everything, he created Adam and Eve, and, he, and everything was perfect. But in his own words, he said it was, it was good. And then when he created Adam and Eve, humankind, he, he, mankind, he said, he said it is very good. And he put them in this garden where there was perfection, and everything was, was glorious and wonderful. And he, he allowed them to have any of the fruit of the trees that they wanted. But he said, you, you, you cannot eat of this one tree. Now, you might say, well, then why did God put that tree in there? Well, in part, God was setting boundaries for mankind. Even though everything was good and perfect and beautiful and lovely, God was setting some margin, some, some boundaries for mankind. And, and in that, Adam and Eve were tempted to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and part of the reason why they took of that tree is they were, they were wanting to see if God had been hiding something from them. And so they took of this, this fruit, and when they took of this fruit, it actually revealed to them that they were seeking knowledge and seeking truth outside of God himself. And in turn, that shows a punishment. That shows, that shows a, a turning away from God. And so that, that punishment, the result of that, is death. Now, a different kind of death because we, yes, there's some sins that result in immediate physical death, but it's a death that's actually spiritual. And so this is what Paul will tell us in Romans 6.23. He says, the wages of sin is death. A wage is a paycheck or something that you've earned. You say, well, that seems pretty bad. Can't I do some more good things to maybe make up for my bad things? Well, Isaiah 64 tells us that you take all of your righteousness, all of the good things that you've done in life, and it actually results in filthy rags. And it's worth nothing. You say, well, I try to do more good things than bad things, and the result of all those good things that you do are, are just filthy rags in front of the, the Lord. And so then, 
And you say, well, well, I'm not as bad as that other person over there. And here's what Paul says in Romans 3.23. He says, for all of us have sinned and, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. So what that means is that when you look around this room, and I'm not encouraging you to, but when you look around the room, every person that you see that you lock eyes with in this room, even me, all of us have fallen short of God's standard of holiness. You might say, well, well did God count to 10 with Adam and Eve? Like, remember, when you start counting with your children, you're in a hostage negotiation. But did God not say, well, okay, you did it once, just don't do it again. I'm going to give you another chance. I'll reset, kind of like what we do in video games. We'll maybe reset to our last save point, and we'll do well, just one more chance. And so I'll, I'll restart and, and, and give you another chance. Why didn't God do that? Well, if a judge is observing a criminal who's committed a, a crime, and he says to them, well, you know, I'll give you a second chance. He might be seen as kind and gentle, but he would not have been just. A, a crime that's committed is required to have a do just against you. And so God, who is just, if, if God just overlooked the sin of Adam and Eve and then even overlooked your sin without there being some type of punishment given, he would not be just and he would not be holy. He would be encouraging anarchy and chaos. So because God is just and God is holy, there's a just punishment for the sins. And, and, and so what happens is, is that even, even in the garden, there's this realization that there's this separation that happens when Adam and Eve have chosen to do their own thing. There's a separation that takes place between them and the Father Jesus had to die because there is a punishment for sin. And so what happens is, is that God makes the judgment take place. You will die. But then God, in, in the Son, the Son comes off of the judge seat and he looks and says, but I will take on that punishment. So the first reason that Jesus had to die was for the punishment of, of sin is death. But the second reason is because there was a promise of reconciliation. See, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what we call the proto-evangelion, the, the first gospel. And what that was, was God made a promise in the garden to say that there's going to be a seed of a son, the, son, the seed of a woman, and that seed of the woman is going to, to stamp out the head of the serpent. What, what he's saying here is that there's going to be one who's going to make right that which has been made wrong. That God is going to make a way for there to be Hope and peace and security and satisfaction. All those things will be made right again. But it won't be done by you. It'll be done by me is what God is saying. And so even in the garden, they're naked and full of shame. Now that they've been exposed in their sin and they're taking leaves and, and, and kind of piecing them together to, to, to conceal their brokenness. And God comes and, and it says that he actually closed them, clo gives them clothes, which is the implication of the first sacrifice that takes place. And so now in the Old Testament, you see the prophets and you see all these regulations that are given for us when we sin, that we were to slaughter an innocent animal to appease or to substitute in our place our sin. And so the sins of man would be actually transferred to that animal and that animal would be slaughtered and died as a sacrifice. And that's why when Jesus comes onto the scene, in the, even in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist looks at him and he says, hey, the lamb, right, 
animal, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because when Jesus came, he didn't just satisfy for a moment people's sins. He came and satisfied all of our sin because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So this promise of reconciliation, Jesus had to die because he made a promise to make right that which we had made wrong. He wasn't the offender, we were, and he made the first step. It's why, it's why even in uh, John's letters he'll say, we love him because he first loved us. So God made this promise in Genesis chapter 3, and he fulfills that promise in Christ. And the only way to fulfill that promise is for Christ to die in your place. The theological term we use for that is called substitutionary atonement. Christ is substituted in our place. To atone, make right at that moment your sin and my sin. And that's the only way you can have reconciliation. You cannot have reconciliation by just giving a bunch of money to the church. You cannot, give, you cannot obtain reconciliation by doing good works, by volunteering every hour of your day, by, by showing up every Sunday. Although those are normal practices of those who love God, you are not reconciled in that way. You're reconciled. By the blood of Christ applied to you. And so Jesus comes and and he's telling his disciples, hey, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. And this deeply distressed them. Mark 9 tells us the same, it's the same scenario in the Gospel of Mark. Mark tells us that they didn't know what to think and so they just didn't say anything at all. How many of you have been in that spot? What did you say? I don't know. Why didn't you say anything? I don't know what to say. This is what they're experiencing. I think sometimes we might be a little harsh on the disciples. I'm not being harsh on them today. I'm experiencing what they're experiencing. There's a degree of which they didn't have all that we have right now. But God was progressively revealing to them what was going to take place. This makes the birth all that more important that we celebrate this Christmas. Because Jesus came on a mission. He says, I've come to seek and save those who are lost. I've come to seal and secure my bride, the the bride of Christ. I've come to make right the wrongs. And so this means that every person in this room can, can be made whole, no matter what you've done, no matter how dark it may seem, or even is being accused of you to be. The Lord looks at you and he says, you can be forgiven of your sin. Not based on what you can do, but based on what I've already done. And so Jesus reminds them. Of his death. But then, he reminds them of something else. We look at verses 24, and it says, when they they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax. Now, I don't know many people who love to talk about taxes. They've got to work for the IRS if they do. But a temple tax was actually instituted in in Exodus chapter 30. You can go back and read it, verses 14 and following. But they had a tent of meeting, the the tabernacle. And what they would do is anybody who was over the age of 20, so if you're over the age of 20, listen up, and a male, uh uh-oh, now we've really narrowed down the field. You were required to pay a temple tax or a tabernacle tax. This was all the way back in Exodus chapter 30. And what would happen is, is that that was the way they kept up the tabernacle. They made sure that 
the lights were turned on and they had AC. They really didn't have AC or lights. Don't send me that email. They didn't have that. I'm just giving an example. But the way they kept the power on, if you will, the way they made sure things were functioning and well kept, you can imagine, they would tax any adult male above 20 a temple tax. Now here, they're coming into Capernaum, and, and they're being charged this tax. It was a, a normal thing that would happen, and, and this was not a Roman tax. This was a Jewish tax, so Jews are taxing Jews, and so what would happen is they just instituted the same type of tax that they had in Exodus 30. They would institute it there with their synagogue and the temple tax in each location, and so the the temple tax guys would come around, and they would collect that from all the men. And so they, they come to, notice they don't come to Jesus. I think they're a little intimidated. They go to Peter. Why, why Peter? Well, he's always, he's always talking. I mean, this is, well, that's got to be the guy that we're going to look to. And so they, they come to Peter, and they say, hey, does, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? This is what they were doing, I imagine. And Peter, we have no idea of the conversation that takes place. We don't know if they've ever talked about it. Peter's like, yeah, yeah, he does. Again, we have, we, have no, we have no recollection of that ever happening, a conversation, but Peter says, yes. And so then Peter goes into the house, and Jesus, showing his miraculous knowledge, he initiates a conversation. When Peter went to the house, Jesus spoke to him, what, what do you think, Simon? From who do, whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers. Jesus begins to use an illustration. He says, hey, hey, Peter, I just want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question about where do kings get their money? Is it from their sons or is it from strangers? Now, now you got to remember, this is an era of kings. And, and while we live in America and we, we kind of fought against all that, uh, we don't have kings. We do have a government. And we would be able to maybe describe and debate about who should be paying taxes and how much less we should be paying in taxes. All those things. That's not what we're here to talk about. But Jesus is giving this picture of going, hey, a, a man who has sons and he's a king, he, he wouldn't charge his own son's taxes. They would get a free pass. Now, you might have some people in your mind that are taking a free pass and shouldn't, but, but there's a sense of they have a free pass, and so sons would not pay a tax, but strangers would. Strangers would. Here, the response comes. Peter says strangers would pay the tax. And Jesus tells them, then the sons are free. What is Jesus reminding him here? Well, he's reminded them of his death, but here Jesus is reminding them about their devotion. Reminding them of their devotion. Where their hearts and who their hearts are devoted to. See, when you trust in Christ, we read it out to you in John chapter 1. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, he gives you the right to be called a son or a daughter a child of the king. Your identity changes. It's not found in your, your, your job any longer. We, we know people who have found their identity in their job, and the second their job goes away, they don't know what to do with their life. They're, they're lost. They're confused. They, they're just, they, they lose a whole identity. There's some that put their identity in their children, and then they become empty nesters, and they go, I don't know what to do with my life. Some have put their identity in their 
their work or their, their children or, or maybe even in their hobbies or, or maybe in the uh, whatever. Maybe you fill in your life with all kinds of things, but the second it goes away, you don't know what to do with yourself. But see, Jesus, Jesus will tell us that our identity is not found in those things. Our identity is to be found in, in him. That when we trust him with our life, our, our hopes and our desires and our dreams, they're to change. They're to be different. It's why Miss Nadine, she's one of our oldest active members here at this church. And I love Miss Nadine, and she demands a hug every Sunday. <laughs> and you do what Miss Nadine, Nadine tells you to do. If you don't know Miss Nadine, you, you obey whatever, and she's this tall. But you do whatever she tells you to do. I'm intimidated by her. But she looked at me this morning, and we were talking about Christmas and, and what she's going to do for the holiday. And, and she, she stopped all the conversation. She said, all that doesn't matter because this church is my family. When you become a follower of Christ, you have more in common with a believer in another country than you do with an unbeliever who might share your political ideology in this country. Think about that. As a believer in Christ, your identity becomes a child of the king. You have more in common with somebody in a foreign country who is a believer than you have somebody in this country who doesn't believe in Christ yet shares your same political ideology. That's what the gospel does. It puts you part of a family that's far greater than you could ever imagine because the church is actually bigger than you think. You are now a son or a daughter of the king, and so your identity now is not in those things that you do or not in the things that people say that you are. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. And so he looks at Peter and he says, therefore, if you understand that you're a son, the sons are free. They're free from having to pay that kind of a tax. But then Jesus does something interesting in the next verse. The last verse of this section, he says, but go fish. Which is why fishing is biblical. Okay, some of y'all are with me. All right. He, he says, go, go fish. Cast it out with a fish hook. Using hooks is biblical. Pull in that fish. The first fish that you grab, and, and, and you'll find in the, the mouth of that fish is a coin. And in that coin, it'll actually pay for yours. This just shows you the miraculous power of Jesus. But what is he? He's, he's communicating, hey, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm not here to be offensive. But go, go, go pay that tax. But you remember what Jesus will say later down the road? He, he's going to say, hey, I'm going to destroy the temple. And in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. See, see these, these tax collectors for the temple, these temple tax collectors, they were trying to catch Jesus to not paying the tax because Jesus has said several times, I'm doing my father's business. Remember when he's left at the temple as a child and his parents come, he's like, what are you doing? I was doing my father's business. I'm in my, I'm in my father's house. And they're saying if, if Jesus doesn't pay the tax, then we have something to accuse him with. But Jesus... Because he humbled himself, as he says in Philippians chapter 2, as it says, Paul says that he humbled himself even to the point of a servant. He came to, to serve, not be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is describing to Peter, hey, you've got to know where your devotion lies. See, because when you become a follower of Christ, your, your devotion changes. What you thought you were going to live for, your bucket list or whatever that may be, it changes when you follow Christ. What you do with your disposable income, whatever that is, what you do with your disposable time, 
wherever that goes, it is to be spent pursuing him. Because that's where freedom is actually found. But I know what happens because I'm living it. Our phones remind us of things. And one of the things that my phone reminds us of or reminds me of are, are pictures from years ago. And there's a moment of great joy. Oh, I remember that moment. And then you look up and you see your child who's grown over the last seven years and you go, Soon they're going to be gone. And what happens is, is that we're reminded of these things and we realize how much we've actually missed. And it's easy at Christmas time to get so consumed with all the things because there's a lot of things. And what happens is that we'll just put on a good face in the midst of it. We call this the front stage versus the backstage. Everybody sees the front stage. They, they see, you know, we, we, we know how to perfect it on Sunday mornings, particularly put on a smile, put on your best clothes. You, you just kind of get, get through it. But the front stage is what everybody sees. But, but nobody ever sees the, back, the backstage. You know, if you go to the backstage, it's usually a little bit darker, a little bit more clutter. You don't want anybody to see it. It's like at your own home. You have guests coming over and you... You put all those miscellaneous stuff in your closet and just pray that they don't go snooping in your closet. We were at dinner with some friends one time in Longview and we're walking through their house looking at their beautiful home and we go into their bathroom. They're just showing us the house, which is just, I guess, a hospitable thing to do. And she said, well, I wasn't going to show you this, but I'm going to show it to you because this is real life. And she opens that closet and you're like, whoa. Please shut the door, right? Nobody ever sees the backstage. And what happens over time is that we get so disoriented, we actually become disconnected from God. The backstage is just a mess. It's dark. It's cluttered. We've not actually dealt with any of the, the real stuff of our life, but we've known how to put on a good front face. And at Christmas time, we do this. If I can just tolerate, just grip my teeth through just a little bit longer with family, I'll make it through. But what if, what if something changed this Christmas? You know where your devotion lies, and so you've dealt with some of that backstage stuff that actually does impact the front stage. And so for many of us, we've become disconnected from God. And what you need to do is actually recognize, recognize that you've become disconnected with God. You've just gotten busy. Things have gotten chaotic. Work has gotten stressful. We are all there. But what if you just recognized it, but then you began to repair it? Well, how do you repair it? Well, you don't repair it by just expecting it to get fixed overnight. You've got to begin to take some intentional steps to reconnect your heart to the Lord. It may just begin with, Lord, reconnect my heart to yours because I feel disconnected. Like, like if you're on a phone call, you, you don't just stay on that phone call when you have a eh, eh, eh. You don't just stay, well, I'm waiting for it to connect. You don't do that. None of us do that. You hang up and you redial. So for many of you, you just need to, Lord, I, I feel a disconnect. But then you need to be refilled. You, you need to be refilled. And the only way for that to happen is for you to actually stop doing what you're doing and ask him to refill you. The Lord looks at Peter. Sons are free. But so many of us in this room right now are not living free.
you're living in bondage. You're living in guilt. You're living in anxiety. You're living in stress. You're living disconnected. And here's what Jesus says to you. Come and be free. The way to freedom is to trust in Christ as your Lord. And the way to freedom is to walk in obedience to what he has said. So this morning is an invitation for you to be free. Remember that Jesus dies. But remember your devotion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the chance to open your word. Lord, we ask that as you begin to work on our hearts that we would respond to you. Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be. To do the things you've called us to do. To surrender those dark places that we've held so tight. Lord, we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. This